Listener Production. Russia maintains a massive invasion force ready to attack. There is still this underlying tension that Russia certainly has the capacity. There's been a cyber attack. Europe is facing its most serious security crisis in decades. As you've been hearing in the news, the tensions between Russia and Ukraine have hit a very dangerous point with 150,000 troops now stationed near the border and US intelligence warning that Russia could invade any day now. Yeah, so on this episode of The Briefing, we're going to find out how this situation came about and what it is like on the ground in Ukraine right now. One woman, she's in marketing during the week. She has three kids. She's 52 years of age. And then on a Saturday morning, she's loading up the boot of her car with weapons and all this kit to go out and train in this freezing cold forest. Yeah, fascinating interview from Ukraine coming to you in this episode of The Briefing. First, here are today's headlines with me, Tom Tilly, and Jan Fran. It is Friday, February 18. And we are starting with big news out of Ukraine overnight. There are reports of shelling in a city in eastern Ukraine by Russian-backed separatists. Ukrainian military sources are saying there were 32 shells, some of which hit a kindergarten. Three workers were injured, but thankfully no children were harmed. Yeah, so the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, has tweeted that the shelling of the kindergarten is, quote-unquote, a big provocation. Now, shelling like this has been occurring at various times over the last eight years, but this is the first time that it's happened when there are 150,000 Russian troops stationed at the border. So it'll be interesting to see how both sides respond to this shelling. More about uh, this whole situation in our briefing in just a moment. And today, New South Wales and Victoria, this is good news for anyone who lives in those states. You'll be waking up to eased COVID restrictions. Happy Friday to you. Yeah, density limits in New South Wales are gone. Singing and dancing is back at hospitality venues and QR codes will only be needed at select locations like nightclubs and festivals. And New South Wales also plans to roll back mask wearing in a week. This is what the new world looks like in a, uh, you know, as the pandemic moves to an endemic phase. So that was the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, there. The Victorian rollbacks, they're pretty similar. They're dropping density limits across pubs and cafes. And also Victoria's dumping check-ins across retail, schools and some workplaces that'll kick in from 6pm tonight. That is sensible. Dan Andrews there saying it's sensible. Um, indoor dancing will be back too which is great. And the ACT are also expected to announce changes to their restrictions later today. So yeah, as the Omicron wave subsides, you've got ICU cases below 100 in New South Wales. So clearly seeing that despite the big case numbers still, that our hospital system's not being overwhelmed and we're going to get back to life as normal pretty much. And Australia's biggest coal fire power station in the New South Wales, Hunter, will close seven years early. With the influx of renewables and that changing market, what we're seeing is that's increasingly having an impact on the way baseload power stations need to run. It's making it less sustainable over time. That's the boss of Origin Energy, Frank Calabria, speaking. Um, the Araring power plant will shut down now in 2025 instead of 2032. And this is a big deal because this one big plant, the biggest in Australia, has been supplying 20% of New South Wales' energy needs. Origin, obviously they operate the power station, they're promising to build a giant 
battery on the same site. Now, the Federal Energy Minister, Angus Taylor, he is warning that the closure could mean grid instability and higher electricity prices. It's also a disappointment uh, for the electricity grid. Uh, but we will work with the New South Wales government and the private sector to make sure there is appropriate replacement. Yeah, interesting to hear him sort of sounding the alarm and, and warning people. It sort of fits with their political strategy. I think, you know, the bosses of these energy companies know the market better than anyone else. And if they're making the call that they're going to do better with renewables rather than this big old coal-fired plant, then I think mm-hmm. they know what they're talking about. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've got sort of 16 power stations that supply the national market. Seven of them are scheduled to close by 2035, and there's another nine that'll close as soon as 2043. And Origin's not the first to make this decision. Just last week, um, major energy company AGL also brought forward the closure date of their two largest coal-fired power plants in New South Wales and Victoria. So, yeah, I think you're right. The energy operators see the writing on the wall, and they're bringing those closures forward. Yeah, and so what this really means, the big takeout here is the the transition to renewables is happening faster than we expected. Yeah, here's an interesting stat. Coal currently contributes 60% to national electricity markets. However, that is down from 87% in 2006. So you can see a very clear trajectory downwards there. Yeah, and I guess if you're saying uh, the other nine power stations will close by 2043, we'll be pretty much out of coal-fired power by then if that's the case but these other power stations have actually been shutting earlier so it could be earlier than 2043 so it does make the net zero goal actually look kind of achievable. Former diplomat turned politician Dave Sharma has told Australian spy chiefs not to weigh in on sledging between Labor and the coalition over who China would want in office. I think they also need to be careful not to interfere in what's properly the domain of political debate and elected representatives. Dave Sharma on the ABC. So this comes after Scott Morrison called Anthony Albanese a Manchurian candidate and then he sent it back the other way. Have a listen to this. Here's what ScoMo said. we got another Manchurian candidate. And here's what Albo said. So if you're looking for a Manchurian candidate, he sits over there. Pretty unedifying stuff. And what Dave Sharma's talking about is the ASIO boss, Mike Burgess, jumping in several times making public statements saying that this kind of sledging about who China would want in power is unhelpful. Um, He said that foreign agents are trying to influence both sides of politics. So it's kind of funny hearing Dave Sharma, you know, now jumping in saying, well, butt out, we want to sledge each other about China. The ASIO boss rarely speaks publicly. So for him to actually come out several times and say, hey, I don't think it's a good idea to do this. I'd be listening to him given how much access to intelligence he has, not politicians who just want to use any opportunity, no matter how dangerous or the implications of it, to try and tank each other down. Do you reckon they'll listen to him or do you reckon there's an election coming up? And like I predicted on yesterday's show, we're probably going to hear more about this in the next coming weeks and months as the sledging continues. Well, the coalition see this as a really good attack line on Labor. Um, So they're going to hit that as hard as they can because... They're struggling to find any other ones that are really landing at the moment. And some sad news coming out of Brazil today. At least 100 people have died in fatal mudslides um, with rescue workers still trying to pull people from the wreckage. 
Cada um vizinho aqui. Each neighbor lost a loved one. They lost two, three, four, five members of the family. Children. I saw all the houses falling like an avalanche. It was absurd. I never thought I'd see this in my life. That translation courtesy of the ABC. 400 people have lost their homes and dozens are still missing. Um, this is happening in the town of Petropolis. It's after storms dumped a month's worth of rain, um, 25 centimetres, in three hours on Tuesday. Yeah, so the rainy season downpours are being fuelled by La Nina. Last month, floods and landslides killed at least 28 people in southeastern Brazil. And the month before that, 24 people died due to heavy rains in the northeast of the country as well. All right, coming up, we're speaking to a reporter on the ground in Ukraine. The fact remains, right now, Russia has more than 150,000 troops encircling Ukraine and Belarus and along Ukraine's border. An invasion remains distinctly possible. That was US President Joe Biden speaking earlier this week, putting the world on notice that a Russian attack could happen very soon and Western countries have been evacuating their embassy staff and warning citizens to get out. But the Ukraine president, Volodymyr Zelensky, been giving a very different message. The best friend for enemies that is panic in our country. And all this information that helps only for panic doesn't help us. Yeah, that was President Zelensky there, as you can hear, urging people to stay calm. So what exactly is happening in Ukraine? Well, Channel 7 reporter Sarah Greenhall is there. She's in the city of Lviv. That's in the far west of the country. She joins us now. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. The whole world's watching Ukraine right now, fearing a war, and you're right there. What's it like being there? How are you feeling? It's really difficult to try and explain to anyone who isn't here how calm Ukrainians are. I will say there's certainly been a shift since the Friday when the White House put out those pretty dire warnings that an invasion could be days away. There was certainly a shift in people's mentality and the way they were talking about things, but it sort of went from no talk about war to, oh, I might just have some things prepared or I might just have a plan to escape West just in case. But it just seems like they just don't believe that it will happen. And I guess that comes in a large part from the fact that people here have been living with conflict in the east of this country now for the past eight years. They have a neighbour that is Russia, so they are used to having these threats. But it is quite bizarre when you see in the big cities, Kiev, Lviv, where we are at the moment, that people are, for the most part, going about their daily lives as per normal. Yeah, normal is a very interesting word that you use. Does it look sort of normal where you are? Are there any visible signs of the threat of an invasion or anything like that? Not at all. We've been in Kiev for about three and a half weeks. We moved to Lviv a couple of days ago. And if you walk down the street of this, what is a beautiful city, people are at the shops, they're at cafes, they're in restaurants, you know, they're they're going to work each day. But on the flip side, because we are here to report on the potential for this conflict, today we visited a hospital in Lviv and under the orders of local authorities, doctors there have been told to stock up on blood supplies, for example. So they've been told to increase that. They've also been stockpiling over the past few months medicines and bandages. So there certainly has been preparations in place because this city, which is in the far west of Ukraine, quite close to the Polish border, it's considered a bit of a safe haven. So the 
there's the potential, if the worst case scenario was to happen, that people from the east could actually flee here as refugees. So the mayor has taken it uh, very seriously that his job is to provide a safe haven for these people if it comes to that. Hopefully it doesn't. What about people preparing weapons? Because there's been a lot of conflict in Ukraine in the last decade. Um, Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. There was the tensions going on between pro-Russian forces and Ukrainians also that year when the MH17 went down. And it involved a lot of civilians tanking up arms and joining the fight. Are there any signs that that's happening now? Yeah, there certainly is, Tom. So we, um, over the past couple of weeks, have spoken to people. So they've signed up to what is called the Territorial Defence Forces here. So basically, they act as reservists. And these are mums and dads, ordinary people who have never picked up a weapon before in their lives. But they saw what happened in 2014, which by all accounts was Ukraine not fighting back. There weren't any shots fired. It was Russia coming in, invading, annexing Crimea, really not challenged. So they are very proud of the fact here in Ukraine that their armed forces now in 2022 are much bigger, stronger, better prepared than they were in 2014. Having said that, if you look at the graphs that have been sort of floating around, the New York Times, for example, have been running a lot of them, this country's army is nothing in comparison to Russia's. The numbers certainly don't stack up, but that's why there are these grave fears that if Russia does mount some sort of full-scale invasion, this will result in such a bloody conflict because the people here won't just let them do it. They will certainly fight back. The mayor, he was a former, you know, champion heavyweight boxer, Klitschko. Mm. His brother signed up to the Territorial Defence Forces. They head off to training on a Saturday morning. And it is quite a surreal sight to see people who, oh, we spoke to one woman, she's in marketing during the week. She has three kids. She's 52 years of age. And then on a Saturday morning, she's loading up the boot of her car with weapons and all this kit to go out and train in this freezing cold forest. So it is a real juxta. And I guess living in a country like Australia, where we're so safe and we've kind of not been exposed to these things. It's a bizarre sight, but people here, they just do it. This isn't the first time that tensions have flared between the two countries. We were just talking about the annexation of Crimea, a very sort of strategic territory there in the south. As you mentioned, Mm -hmm. fighting has been going on in eastern Ukraine for almost a decade now. But can you give us some context about this latest flare up? Like how bad is this compared to ones that we've heard about previously? If you speak to the president or you listen to what he's been saying, Volodymyr Zelensky, he has repeatedly said that what is happening at the moment is nothing new. They have been living with this threat more or less for the past, you know, decade, as you say. All of a sudden there has been this troop build-up, but it did start last year. So this didn't happen overnight. It has been a slow progression, but then it's got to this stage where we've got this Western intelligence saying that, you know, an invasion is imminent. But the president has certainly been playing it down. That, of course, could be due to a few factors. Uh, He is trying to protect his economy. Airlines are pulling out of Kiev. They've suspended flights. They don't want to fly over Ukrainian airspace in a large part also due to what happened with MH17. He's also trying to keep his population calm, but I get the sense that he also truly does believe that this is just something that they are used to living with here. A lot of people have asked why now, like why is Vladimir Putin doing this now when he Mm. could do it at any stage? That, again, is possibly due to a few factors, including 
when you look internationally, there was that chaotic pull out of Afghanistan, you know, six months ago. So some analysts believe this is Vladimir Putin testing Joe Biden. It could also be reminding him uh, that we're over here where Russia, we still exist because there has been so much emphasis on China in recent times as well. So there's a lot of different factors at play here. But at the end of the day, it all comes down, you know, whatever he chooses to do, Putin, and, and he is the only one who knows how this is going to play out. He is affecting ordinary people. These are ordinary citizens who are going to be affected. So the power dynamics between Russia and these former Soviet territories like Ukraine and the interplay between Russia and Europe are incredibly complex. Trying to cut through that, how would you explain the main tension point here? What's driving this situation? So Russia wants a legal guarantee that Ukraine will never join NATO, the military alliance that now involves 30 member states. It also wants guarantees that the existing NATO border will be pushed back and that, you know, NATO forces and weaponry that is currently in Eastern Europe that will be removed as well. These are demands that the West is not willing to concede on. They're just not going to do it. I did see an interesting line today from a Ukrainian official who had said that president here is considering a referendum on whether Ukraine should join NATO or not. Personally, again, having been here for a month, I don't think that's something that would go ahead uh, and that would fly with people here, but perhaps it's just been said because the tensions are so high at the moment. But that is Russia's main demand. It sees NATO as this threatening power. You heard Joe Biden in that very strong speech say, we are not a threat to you. He was directly appealing to the Russian people. He said, we, you know, the United States, NATO, we're not a direct threat to you. But that is what Vladimir Putin wants. How do locals on the ground feel about those dynamics? Do the majority of people in Ukraine want to join NATO and how committed to joining it is the Ukraine government? It's certainly an ambition. It's in the country's constitution, I believe, but it's not something that people in the streets of these cities are talking about each day. They're more worried about COVID or, you know, putting their kids through school or all these normal things that other people in other countries are worrying about. But it's certainly not something that they're willing to categorically say, we will not join NATO just to get Russia off their backs. They're not going to do that. The United States has made it very clear and the UK has as well that they will not be sending NATO troops into Ukraine if a conflict does break out, but they will be sending reinforcements as they have already to Eastern Europe to bolster that flank. The president is a really interesting guy. His name's Vladimir Zelensky. You talked about him before. He was an actor playing the part of a president in a TV series (laughs) and then actually became the president in 2019 and now finds himself in a pretty tricky situation. Are there any signs that his lack of political experience is playing out badly? I think a lot of people doubted that he would be able to lead this country successfully through what is, by all accounts, a crisis. I think in the past couple of days in particular, he has convinced a lot of people that might have been on the fence that he is doing a pretty good job of it. And you've got to think that he is in a tough position. He has the President of the United States telling him this is what's happening, warning the world that an invasion, a war is imminent. He needs to keep people here calm. He needs to keep his economy running. And he has done a very, very good job in trying to keep people calm. 
Uh, critics have said, you know, are you underestimating President Putin here? You know, you're, you're really downplaying mm. the threat. Is that wise as well? He has tried to strike a balance in the fact that he has also simultaneously, while telling people to be calm, asked NATO for that weaponry, which they have sent. Money has also been sent to help this country through what could be an incredibly difficult time. I've actually been to a couple of press conferences with him in the palace in Kiev. And he is, as you say, Tom, he's a really interesting guy. He really thinks things through. He explains himself very well. I was just talking to our fixer, the guy who's been helping us locally today about it. And he himself said that he doubted Zelensky, but he sort of won him over in the past couple of days. That was Channel 7 News reporter Sarah Greenhall there from Lviv, the city to the far western end of Ukraine. Yeah, interesting. She said people are quite calm, but then at the same time on weekends, they're putting weapons in the boots of their cars and training scaling up for an invasion. And that since 2014, there's been a feeling that they want to build more capacity this time to stand up to Russia if they do invade. Mm. And it's not just the Russians that are amassing troops. It's also NATO as well. The US, the UK, they've sent more troops, um, particularly around the western side of Ukraine. And it's interesting, Sarah, saying that Ukrainians are perhaps a little bit more willing to fight back this time. So if things really do go pear-shaped, unfortunately, it's going to result in potentially quite a lot of carnage for people in the Ukraine, which is a situation that everybody wants to avoid, I imagine. Or that the build-up means Russia don't actually make a move because they could see carnage themselves. Maybe this stalemate drags on for quite a long time. All right, that's it for your Monday to Friday briefing. Uh, Jamila Rizvi will be in your feed tomorrow with the weekend briefing. Jamila, who's on? Hey, team. This weekend, I am chatting with Tarang Chawla. He is someone who is a household name and never wanted to be. In 2015, Tarang's sister, Nikita, was brutally murdered by her former partner. And in the aftermath of that violence, Tarang decided he would dedicate his life to making sure that there were not more women like his sister Nikki. And yet, there has of course been one Australian woman killed every week on average since that time almost seven years ago. So what can we do about it? What can this community do to actually shift these horrific numbers and the devastating reality of how many women and some men are subjected to family violence, to domestic abuse, to depraved activity that happens in their own homes where they should be safe. Tarang actually has some answers. Well, I look forward to that. An intense but important sounding episode of the Weekend Briefing in your feed tomorrow. Have a wonderful weekend. Uh, We'll catch you Monday. Listener.